0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Hopeful Science! Yay! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com QAF. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I will be your hopeful host today. <laughs> With me are my sad co-hosts, Lauren Bailey. Hi. Jem Newman. Hello, and Laura Knewman, you, you, <laughs> you jerks.
1: <laughs> Hi, Laura. Hi. How are you today? I'm fine, Ashlyn. I'm glad this is the Laura Ashlyn show only, right? We're gonna talk
0: about some happy things. It's gonna be a good time. There's a literal cloud over this half of the table. <laughs> I was originally going to talk about one thing And while researching it, discovered it was in fact a bummer And switched to a different topic <laughs> That genuinely like made me happy to research So I feel like I made a really good segment And I'm excited for today's show of hopeful things But we're going to start with Jem instead Jem has a correction <laughs> from last time Everything you
2: know is wrong Black like is white, up is down and shorty
3: Instead of hope, I have a correction for an error from last episode. I'm not doing a full segment this week because I am back in the med school grind. I'm about to start clerkship. I'm just transitioning right now, doing a bunch of sim sessions, and it is a hell of a thing, let me tell you. But I'm not going to tell you. Instead, I'm going to talk about this correction. So a listener wrote in with a question about something that came up during my segment last month. Paul from Stratford, Ontario wrote... Hi, everyone. Thanks for a great show. Question for you. During Jem's segment, he clarified a question about rocks and dust flying into the atmosphere each day. And he said that the f- first burned up and converted into energy. My Spock eyebrow automatically raised at the statement. Did these small pieces of matter actually undergo matter-energy conversion? Or do they combust and combine into something like CO2, etc.? If that's the case, then the Earth system would, in fact, be gaining mass each day. I have no qualification here, and will want to know more, no matter what the answer is. Thanks, Paul. And Paul is absolutely right here. My comment was an off-the-cuff response to a question that was asked during my segment, and I was wrong. WRONG! I ran the mass-energy equivalence, and according to my math, if every meteoroid that entered the atmosphere underwent matter-to-energy conversion, That would be a truly absurd amount of energy. (laughs) That would be great. Gratuitous amounts of energy! From (laughs) E equals mc squared, 90,000 kilograms of debris would convert into roughly 8.1 zeta joules, or 8 sextillion joules, which, if I did the math right, translates to about 2 billion kilotons of TNT. So that's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) But what is happening? What I was trying and failing to say is that most meteoroids break apart and burn up when they enter the atmosphere. And in the vast majority of cases, no detectable solid matter makes it to the ground. But as Paul mentions, there is mass being added to the system. While much of the potential and kinetic energy of these meteoroids is converted into waste heat, which is energy. It was already energy to begin with, right? That's just an energy-changing form, from potential and kinetic energy to waste heat. And the matter changes form via a combination of combustion and ablation. But that's very different from matter-to-energy conversion. So we've got energy-changing form and matter-changing form, not the one changing into the other. The bright tail we see as a meteor streaks across the sky is the result of heat generated by ram pressure, not friction, as many of us were told back in elementary school, ram pressure, as the atmosphere compresses in front of the falling meteoroid. The object has to be at least uh, about 10 centimeters, that's four inches, across in order for it to heat up enough for a glow like this to happen. And of course, for a glow to be visible, it helps if it happens over a part of the Earth that is currently experiencing nighttime. Sure does. (laughs) Sure does. So the ram pressure results in atmospheric ablation, vaporizing some of the meteoroid material and reducing a good deal of it to meteoric dust. This dust can remain in the atmosphere for months, and some of this vaporized material may persist and stay in the atmosphere indefinitely, but much will eventually find its way down. Once a meteoroid slows down to terminal velocity, and for smaller meteoroids and micrometeoroids this may be essentially instantaneous, Whatever fragments remain achieve what is called dark flight, where they fall (laughs) directly to Earth, most often the ocean, actually, not not Earth Earth, without any visible meteor trail at all. So, no matter to energy conversion. And much of the material that enters the atmosphere does eventually make it to the ground, or the water, in the form of microscopic dust. But despite the total mass involved, again, that's 90,000 kilograms, According to NASA, it's still not nearly enough to cause any real growth in the size of the Earth. So thanks to Paul for catching that mistake. As I said last episode, never trust a generalist to get the specifics right. <laughs>
0: He's not a scientist, okay? <laughs> Love not it. Not a scientist. He wasn't.
2: <laughs> that was an awesome correction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Jim. And thank you to Paul. Mm-hmm.
0: Next, we're going to go to Lauren. I grew up
2: queer in the 80s and 90s. Well I, sheltered in northwestern Ontario, had no one in my immediate circle who I knew had HIV, there were some people with it on the periphery of my life, and I was acutely aware of reports in the news and media. I was a strange child, and they detailed the callousness of the mainstream culture. <laughs> Hi, Reagans! <laughs> through slightly more caring and nuanced takes that started cracking through the cultural consciousness in the mid 1990s. Before then it was pretty damn bleak. Then there was rent and my first exposure to the drug AZT and other antiretrovirals. I mean I wasn't exposed to AZT but exposed to the knowledge of AZT. Mm-hmm. And these antiretrovirals turned an HIV diagnosis from an immediate death sentence to something that could be managed and hopefully someday overcome. So now I'm in my 40s. I am acutely aware of the devastation wrought by HIV and AIDS and the loss of near entire generations of queer elders and entire countries in Africa. I have friends and mutuals who are living with HIV, and now there's so much hope. We have PrEP and also more than one vaccine in clinical tests. I have lived to see the day where HIV and AIDS no longer shorten someone's lifespan or restrict their life, and hopefully it's only going to get better from here human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, is a retrovirus. That means it inserts a DNA copy of its RNA genome into the DNA of a host cell and changes the genome of that cell. It uses a spike protein just like COVID. Once it's nice and comfy in the cytoplasm of the cell, the retrovirus uses an enzyme that makes its DNA from its RNA genome. Jem will correct me if I'm screwing up the science please
3: no it's the the science of how it does that is very cool yeah. mm-hmm. but terrifying don't, don't don't like the outcome mm-hmm. TBH.
2: so these retroviruses it's apparently opposite to how most viruses reproduce so that's why it's called retro
3: because retro means backwards yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> the host cell then uses the virus dna as part of its own genome and replicates it when it reproduces making more copies of the virus including A whole bunch of mutations. In a 2017 paper, Recent Advances in Understanding Evolution, authors from the University of Oxford identified these frequent mutations as, quote, a major contributing factor in the failure of the immune system to eradicate the virus. Since each mutation makes it more difficult for treatments to recognize the virus, the virus evolves at what the authors describe as the highest recorded biological mutation rate currently known to science. (laughs) It's real hard. (laughs) The combination of the process and its mutations due to errors in the process result in one reason that HIV is exceedingly difficult to treat, let alone cure, with a single drug. You'll hear things like the HIV cocktail. Mm -hmm. Your AIDS cocktail, you've got to take like 30 drugs at one time. HIV also targets the T-cells, which are one of the supports of a healthy immune system. Without these T-cells, specifically the CD4-plus cells, your body is much more open to opportunistic infections or cancers and can't fight them off. That's what I've always heard. It's not the AIDS that kills you. It's what it opens your body up to.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. and your CD4 count is the proxy that is used for the severity of disease.
1: The higher the count, the worse. No, no, or the, 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 lower the lower the count. Yeah, the lower CD4 your T-cell is good. It's your, okay, sorry. Yeah.
3: So, so the so, higher your CD4 count, the better you are doing. Yeah. The lower your CD4 count. I was thinking of
1: another
2: thing where you you want... I know some of these words. If we're going to equate it back to rent terms with the guy saying, my T-cells are low.
1: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: But how do you feel today? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm going to stop... (laughs)
1: <laughs> there, You knew there was no way to do this segment Without many rent quotes many, And that's fine, I love rent it's How
2: all many good. minutes in a year? No <laughs>
1: 525,600 no. minutes We
3: almost made it through the segment
1: Nope,
3: <laughs> won't do you it You walked down the aisle to that, gem. You're not getting out of this uh, uh, I, I have a feeling that maybe Marissa wouldn't have let us get out of the segment <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're correct, sir <laughs>
2: In the last couple of years, since the advent of the mRNA COVID vaccines, actually, and the mRNA vaccine trials that were before them, this is not a single effort that has then branched off. This is many, many different efforts coming together. Scientists at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases have started a phase one clinical trial testing three separate mRNA HIV vaccines, though there's some more acronyms for us mRNA stands for messenger RNA. While traditional vaccines work by implanting an inert or less virulent version of a virus so you can build up antibodies, think of the cowpox for smallpox being the first vaccine and that's why they're named after cows, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: mRNA vaccines work by delivering a piece of genetic material that instructs the body to make a protein fragment of the target pathogen, which the immune system recognizes and remembers so it can mount a substantial response if later exposed to that pathogen. So that study, which is called HVTN302, not that you need that information, (laughs) will examine whether three experimental HIV mRNA vaccines are safe and can induce an immune response. Each vaccine candidate is designed to present the spike protein found on the surface of HIV that facilitates entry into the human cells. So we're going to punch right on through. Each of the experimental vaccines encodes for different but highly related stabilized proteins. None of the three vaccine candidates can cause HIV infection, because that would be Mm -hmm. way
3: unethical. Mm. Yeah. They just tell your body how to build a little piece of this protein that it can then recognize and say, hey, that's not supposed to be here.
2: Emergency, emergency. (laughs) So this is really freaking exciting Mm -hmm. and hopeful. I'm going to quote now from the National Institute of Health press release for the ongoing methodology, because they said it better than I could ever paraphrase. Quote, Led by Principal Investigators Jesse Clark, M.D., of the University of California, Los Angeles, and Sharon Riddler, M.D., of the University of Pittsburgh, the HVTN 302 study will enroll up to 108 adults aged 18 to 55 years at 11 sites. It then lists the sites. I will not. Each participant will be randomly assigned to one of six groups, each receiving three vaccinations of one of the experimental vaccines. The first three groups, 18 participants each, called Group A, will receive intramuscular injections of 100 micrograms of their assigned vaccine candidate at the initial visit. At month two, and again at month six, participants in Group A will be evaluated two weeks after initial vaccination to ensure safety criteria have been met. If so, The remaining three groups of 18 participants each, Group B, will be vaccinated with 250 micrograms of the assigned investigational vaccine, followed by injections two and six months after the initial vaccination. Safety and immune responses will be examined via blood and lymph node. Fine needle aspiration samples taken at specified time points throughout the trial. Clinical staff will closely monitor participant safety throughout the study. The clinical trial is expected to be completed by July 2023. So I'm sure we will hear something next summer about mm-hmm. how these trials went and if any of the potential vaccines are proceeding to phase two trials. Mm. This is the best hope we have so far. And wow, I am so ready for this to be our new reality.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll check back in next July. Make a Google calendar alert.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I did when I read that, when I read
0: that <laughs> item. It was a
2: news release from the NIH. So I'm like, I will check this out in a year.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that's really exciting. That's that's great because vaccines when we can figure out the right formula, they work. Yeah. Vaccines are important. Not <laughs> take them.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Lauren. Red, 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 red. Up next, Laura wants to tell us about something very hopeful that might be coming to a workplace near you.
1: <laughs> Please? Yes. Thanks, Ashlyn. I want to talk about the emergence or the the gaining popularity of the 4-day work week. Well, I'm not going to talk as detailed science as Lauren did. I think this is an important thing for us to talk about and as you heard at the beginning, Some of us around this table are very excited for this (laughs) prospect. And what I like about this topic is that it's no longer just one of those things that, oh, it sounds great, but people are doing trials with it around the world in different countries and even in different industries. And that's why I wanted to talk about it today. The idea of a four-day work week is not a new one. It's been around for some time, and some companies have actually transitioned many years ago, decades ago in some cases. But it hasn't been part of the working lexicon or or ideas about what work could be or should be until recently. As as we know, the pandemic has changed so many things about our lives and work culture and what workers expect and what we want out of our lives has become a lot more prominent. And given the current economic state in most places, it's now clear that listening to some of these desires is really, really important. And over the last two years, there have been several trials that have been started of transitioning to a four-day work week. And I would love to say that these weren't just ways for companies to try to save money (laughs) during the (laughs) pandemic. (laughs) I wish I could say that. (sighs) Right. Perfect world. However, some of the trials recently have been a little bit different than the way that this has been approached before. One of the most popular types of four-day work weeks that is being trialed right now is reduced working hours for the same pay. So most places are trying something along the lines of working 32 hours a week, but still getting paid whatever they were paying the people at 40 hours a week. This is a lot different than what I even remember from before I was a worker or more of a professional type position where, yeah, four-day work weeks are great. You just work 10 hours every day instead of your eight. Yep. Yeah. Right? So that, and and not to say that that isn't still around, but the trials and the studies that are being done on these trials right now are looking at that different model and looking at that quality of life for the workers as part of the outcomes that they need to measure. And again, Uh. that is... What I think is really different. So they're measuring things like mental health and burnout levels, stress (laughs) levels. In the time
3: I've been speaking, over 80 million people have died of stress. (laughs) When you told me about this, I expected that they would just be trying to say, well, does this actually harm worker productivity? But worker productivity is hardly the only thing that's important. Right, right, yeah.
1: Right. Again, I would love to say that they weren't primarily looking at worker productivity. Yeah. They are looking at additional things outside
2: <laughs> of worker productivity. This is the hopeful segment.
1: This is, this is the hopeful. And we can all imagine much better working worlds that are much more equitable and just and all of that. It's going to be stepping stones, which is hard, but. I think this is a positive move compared to a lot of the things that were done. So speaking of worker productivity, in most of these trials, they're seeing that productivity at the very least doesn't go down. In fact, it goes up in many cases. So some companies are looking at that via profits. Others are looking at like the number of projects completed, whatever it happens to be, but they're not noticing a decrease in productivity, which is a good thing because We start to recognize then that it's not the fact that you sat at that desk or whatever it was for eight hours that made you able to do that thing. It's that you were able to do that thing and that then your time is worth paying you that amount of money because you can accomplish that thing. I think that there's ways that that could be twisted, but I think it's important to see this kind of thing, that we can start divorcing a lot of the jobs that we have from the time spent. And what I would really love to see is just get away from this entire hourly pay thing as well, because that's part of this problem that keeps the 40-hour work week going, because, well, you haven't been here for the hour, so you haven't earned it. Well, no, did I do all Mm. of the things? Because. If, for example, if you are working a minimum wage job in retail, you can ring through zero sales in an hour or you can ring through 30 sales in an hour and you still get the same pay if you're not getting any commission. So, yes, there's incentives to try to bring in more. But what I'm saying is like that time you were actually more productive in the busier hour. So can we just pay people to be there to do the work or whatever it is? I think that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I think sense, so. Okay.
2: Yeah. I'm just worried it's going to be used... Against saying using retail workers as an example. How like, so? Like the, yeah, you earned your pay when you put through 30 sales this hour, but you didn't earn anything, so we're not going to pay you for that other hour.
3: Yeah, that's...
1: I mean, so, that's commission work, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is a problem. So the
3: idea of essentially renting a person, with paying somebody for their time, mm-hmm. yeah. and you get to tell them what is happening during that time with constraints of a contract and like that, hopefully... That's a relatively new invention in the working world Mm -hmm. in the last couple hundred years, and it would have been alien to anybody living in like the Renaissance, for example. But one of the things that it provides over piecework, for example, paying somebody for a unit of labor rather than for a time, is that it's easier to attempt to set fair minimums for pay across an industry when you're not part of the industry and you don't understand it.
2: Mm, so like understanding
3: yeah. what a fair minimum wage for like a circuit board is, is really hard if you have no idea how you make a circuit board yeah. <laughs> or if the way you make a circuit board is constantly changing. Whereas if mm-hmm. you're setting an hourly wage, it's a lot easier to set up a fair minimum wage. Not that anyone making a circuit boards is paid a minimum
0: fair wage. Fair wage. That is <laughs>
1: fair. <laughs> yeah,
0: Totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I am hopeful that it will be that we can move away from paying just for the time and more so for paying the wage. You are here to do this thing. We have an agreement that you will be here for more or less this time, but it's not, oh, if you'd clock out early, you now are docked your pay or whatever it is, because that's part of the problem that keeps these long work hours going because it doesn't matter how well you do, it doesn't matter what you do, you just have to be there. And that's the culture that we have in a lot of cases. Not every industry, but so I'm hopeful that these types of moves will get away from that pave for time kind and of thing.
2: We have to worry about well, you know what, this is a hopeful segment. I'm yeah, we don't need is, to keep, uh, it is a hopeful I'm not segment. Say yes, I'm we say. can
1: we can try to punch holes at the same time I think there's something to this. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the fact that they are looking at rates of mental health, mental well-being, work-life balance as a common thing that they're looking at. Of course, these are used as recruiting tools. At the same time, we hear all the time that there are lots of jobs that are not being filled because people don't want to work bad jobs anymore. And so employers need to adjust. and, And this is an important part of life. We've worked for a very long time as a society, assuming that people we'll just keep going and we've realized this this doesn't work anymore it doesn't make sense
0: productivity quote-unquote keeps going up and up but lives don't get better right capitalism was a mistake
1: damn the man save the empire A lot of these trials as well have been doing surveys or researching what people do with their downtime, with their additional downtime. And so they're finding that people are doing more volunteering, for example, where they're finding that people are spending more time ac- cooking for themselves or doing leisure activities, be it physical activities or other types of enrichment activities. They're spending more time with their own families and things like that. So they're doing a lot of things that are helping them be better employees, not that that's the goal, but like help them rejuvenate, help them feel well, help them support their well-being and their health and and their health needs and things like that, which then allows them to do better. What I thought was really interesting as well is there are even some trials where they're trying this in industries like healthcare, because one thing that you'll notice is most of the trials that are being done are in white collar tech sector kind of work where most work is done Monday to Friday, nine to five, eight to four, something like that. When you have a -a 24-hour-a-day industry like healthcare, it's a lot harder to do that kind of thing. So what they're really looking at is giving people shorter shifts. So what we've seen in healthcare is the extension of shifts, especially for nurses and healthcare aides. And and, physicians have historically worked absurdly long Mm -hmm, shifts. mm -hmm. And we see a parallel in rates of burnout and mental illness and health problems that go along with that. And so there's one study that was brought up where they, in Sweden, I believe, where they gave nurses six-hour shifts instead of eight-hour shifts. And I'd like to say, like, here in Manitoba, most nurses work somewhere between an eight- or a 12-hour shift. They actually move most of the nurses over to 12s in many mm-hmm. of our biggest hospitals.
0: And isn't it like right after the 12-hour marks, the the mistake rate and the error rate goes way up exactly. and they always yep. extend their shifts? so. Right. If they're starting at 12 hours, that's not safe.
1: Exactly. No, it's, not. Yeah. It's, it's not safe to do that. So they did find in this study that they, of course, if you have the same number of people and they're working fewer hours than they were, they had to hire more people. But as we would expect, they have higher worker retention. They have lower costs of things like disability payments and whatnot because their workers are happier and healthier. And the patients are reporting better patient care as well. Hiring more people is not a bad metric. Right. (laughs) So they're finding that even though they had to spend a bit more money to hire someone else, they're saving it on the other side. And if we're looking at our healthcare crisis that we're having, I hate to use that term because it's overused, but it truly is. As someone who works Mm -hmm. in a hospital... And as Ashlyn said, people who are already coming for a 12-hour shift and then are mandated, that's the word for forced to stay, for an additional four plus hours until they can get a replacement, that's not good. Mm -hmm. That is not good for any of us. And if you only care about the money, people start getting paid double or double and a half after certain hour marks. So you're not saving any money by forcing the same few people to come back. Yeah. just saying
0: <laughs> but people have such a hard time with that math it's the same as ubi math they think well we can't give away money that would be foolish and we would be wasting it but but the returns you don't understand You <laughs> don't understand how capitalism has like <laughs> rotted so many brains like, and, and why know would i spend we keep coming
2: back
3: to <laughs> yeah why would i spend money on toothpaste it's not doing anything. <laughs> it
1: helps me. It's seventy five
0: percent water. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to save me money at the dentist in the long run. This is a scam.
1: Damn, this dentist bill is so expensive.
0: <laughs>
3: and yes. This is like this is finally. We'll, we'll see where this goes. I, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm trying to be. The
0: sarcasm in his face,
1: you guys. (laughs) Oh, he's trying. Oh my god. I think he's actually sincere
0: on that. He was just like, I want you to know I'm saying the words, I am hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting into the ringtone.
3: (laughs) This is finally attempting to realize the, the promise of industrialization, right? The fact that we don't have to work as hard. We have labor-saving devices, Mm -hmm. but those haven't actually been saving labor. They have been making labor more productive and padding the pockets of the people who own the machines. So if they don't want us to start smashing looms again... I got three. Then this is a good start. Right. Let's not stop at four.
1: That was another point that... Was brought up as well, the, the technological advances and using them appropriately to do these things. So I can think in my day to day work, if I had more electronic systems and systems that talked to each other, (laughs) I would spend a lot less time doing things and I could actually be more productive or I might not need to have a body in the building that same way. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that. That we could be using better. But again, it comes down to the, why invest in this now? Oh, darn, we're spending so much of our money on people doing this stuff instead of that stuff. In any case, there I won't get into it, but they're also looking at the climate effects of four-day work weeks. This Mm, is... Especially for industries where they want people to come back into the office. If people are driving in or commuting in one less day a week, they're looking at the decreased carbon emissions that that would affect, the decreased heating costs of the building or ventilation costs, things like that. So I really appreciate this looking at it in a a more global sense and a well-being sort of sense and not just a how can we still make absurd amounts of money kind of sense
2: eight for work eight for rest and eight for whatever you will was a starting point yeah we've been stuck here for a century
1: Mm -hmm. right right exactly one last thing i wanted to throw in as well is that there are of course there are some criticisms about it there's ways that you want to go about it, or there's different schools of thought on how you would want to do that. And of course, saying everybody works Monday to Thursday isn't going to work for every person or every industry. And a lot of people rightly bring up the fact that flexibility, so it's not just the fewer hours, but flexibility is what's really, really important in this kind Mm -hmm. of world. If we do Mm -hmm. have a global interconnected 24, 24 hours a day kind of world, then being able to say, I'm going to be late today or I need to take off early or I need a chunk out of my day here and I'll do it there is another really important point. So it's not just, again, it's a starting point. It's not just about only four days a week. It's about how we implement it. And then thinking about the downstream costs too. Another criticism that was brought up was looking at, actually, I'm looking at Jim here, the cap that was put on the number of hours a week that medical students can work. And there's often criticism for that from some people we know <laughs> uh, about how we're under training doctors now because of that. Again, Not we burning have really them out. good evidence back that's dating back to 2014 that says like 55 hours a week is the hard cap for productivity. Mm-hmm. Anything over that, it doesn't matter whether you go up to 80 or 120, your productivity absolutely maxes like it's not to say that 55 is the pinnacle, it's that it, you will see zero benefit yeah. past that. You're already on a downslope, but you're not going to see wow. any benefit after 55 hours. Yeah. So what this really means is not that we need to go back to making medical students work absurd hours when they're tired and are far more likely to make mistakes. We just need to give them more time to learn to do what they need to do yeah. and integrate that knowledge. That's all we need to do, and mm-hmm. there's no reason why. There are no good reasons. Let me correct that. There are no good <laughs> reasons why we couldn't extend the programs that we have to give them the time. We have yep. artificial time constraints that yeah. force them into a four-year program that doesn't give them the time to learn what they need to learn.
3: Or a three and a half year program,
0: if you're in Halpern. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and they've, they've <laughs> it has been the same number of years for what hundreds of years? No, uh, no, no, they didn't have as much training. A good but, 50, let's but say, it's a been, good yeah, 50. <laughs> too long for the amount of medical knowledge we have gained in that amount of time. So, so what has generally
3: happened is they've extended residencies. Mm-hmm. So, it used to be that in order to qualify as a general practitioner, which doesn't Isn't a term that gets used anymore. You would have to after your med school, you would have to complete a single year as an intern, which is what they used to call first year of residency, and then you were qualified as a general practitioner, what we now call a family doctor. But that hasn't. We for a couple decades now, we've had family medicine as its own specialty. It's regulated by a different college, but it's its own specialty and it has a two year residency, which is probably about to be. You know, I believe they confirmed it's going to be extended to three. Hmm. So often what they've done is they've extended the residency rather than extending the actual medical school mm-hmm. and, you, and you can't practice as a physician without completing residency yeah. so it's something yeah <laughs> the
2: word residency is one of the things that radicalized baby lauren oh uh-huh. about work stuff like understanding that the word came from the fact that you lived at the hospital because you <laughs> had to be there so much like they had dorms <laughs> set up like in the basement yeah I was like this isn't good. (laughs) Nobody wants this. (laughs) And the little wheels started turning. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, looking forward to to that little call room that I'll be spending some time in.
1: Anyway, I am hopeful that things like the four-day work week or more truly flexible work schedules where we are not forced to just be there to prove that we're worth it are more of a reality.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Here here here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no more butts and seats. Down with capitalism.
1: Day-tac- Damn the man. Fred Save Patrick, the empire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, that just leaves me on Mars, nearly 140 million kilometers away. There is a device that's either the size of a lunchbox or a car battery, depending on which article you read, because Americans will use any unit of measure except the metric system. (laughs) (laughs) It is in fact about 24 by 24 by 30 centimeters, and it has been successfully producing oxygen at roughly the rate of a small tree. Oh, cool. From NASA's cute and informative little page about the mission, I learned that the name of the mission, MOXIE, is explained thusly. MOXIE is a short, snappy name for a tool that helps lead to human footprints on Mars. It helps humans explore Mars by making oxygen, it works in situ, in place, on the red planet, and is an experiment. So, the Mars Oxygen In Situ Resource Utilization Experiment or MOXIE, that's a good background. <laughs> has been producing oxygen from Mars's carbon dioxide rich atmosphere. It is 95% CO2, the atmosphere Oof. of Mars. That's so high. It's been producing it since April of 2021. I just want to break in here
2: mm-hmm. to say that we were promised that this was going to be a segment about MOXIEs and we were going to have bellinis. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jem made that up.
1: Uh, Liar.
0: We can go to Moxie's after this. It's probably still open.
3: (laughs) Somebody needs to stay with the kids that are sleeping.
1: (laughs) Snowflake, you're in charge.
0: Moxie Deputy Principal Investigator Jeffrey Hoffman said, this is the first demonstration of actually using resources on the surface of another planetary body and transforming them chemically into something that would be useful for a human mission. But does be really like deserve liter- to go to Mars? Yeah. It's literally like terraforming. Yeah. That's it's really be- cool. It's pretty cool. Oxygen production was first achieved on April 20th, 2021, producing 5.37 grams of oxygen, <laughs> equivalent to what an astronaut on Mars would need to breathe for about 10 minutes
1: astronauts to the
0: moon by the end of 2021 moxie was able to produce oxygen seven times each time taking a few hours to warm up then another hour to make oxygen before powering back down in a variety of atmospheric conditions through different martian seasons in day or night at different extreme temperatures and in the wake of a dust storm hecht says that moxie continued producing high purity oxygen each time it reached its goal of producing six grams of oxygen per hour similar to the rate of a modest tree on Earth. Oh, <laughs> Huffman again says, The atmosphere of Mars is far more variable than Earth. The density of the air can vary by a factor of two through the year, and the temperature can vary by 100 degrees. One objective is to show that we can run it in all seasons. So Martian spring is apparently approaching. It's like early winter now, so we're waiting for spring. And that is the time of the highest carbon dioxide density levels in the atmosphere. So the engineers plan to push the abilities of MOXIE. One reason is to monitor the system for wear and tear. Because the system was designed for this mobile rover, it wasn't able to be like a continuously running thing. So they've only been able to turn it on and run it a few times over the course of the life of Perseverance. And the thermal stress of repeatedly heating and cooling the system can be really tough on hardware. So that's one reason why a scaled-up version would be designed to run continuously.
1: Also, we need air all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Not just seven times a year.
0: (laughs) If Moxie can operate successfully despite repeatedly turning on and off, this would suggest that a full-scale system designed to run continuously could do so for thousands of hours. Very exciting. Hmm. Depending on the dust clogs, but yes. Over the course of the year, Moxie was able to reliably produce roughly 15 minutes of oxygen per hour in a variety of harsh planetary conditions. That added up to a total of 50 grams of oxygen total, about 100 minutes worth of breathable oxygen for a person.
1: Nice. Pretty good.
0: Moxie is designed to safely generate up to 10 grams an hour of oxygen, with theoretical production limited to 12 grams per hour due to the limited capacity of the power supply. So how does it do it? Moxie takes in Martian air through a HEPA filter, compresses the gases with a scroll pump, heats it to 800 degrees Celsius and sends it through a solid oxide electrolysis assembly, SOXE. I don't know how you're pronounced, supposed to pronounce that acronym, but S-O-X-E, SOXE? Gonna guess. This device pulls the oxygen atoms from the carbon dioxide to produce oxygen gas. There's a very complicated description that I cut because I did not understand it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Moxie has been measuring the oxygen, sort of testing it for purity and releasing it. The exhaust is a mixture of CO2... CO and inert atmospheric gases, mostly argon and nitrogen. And all of these things are already present on the planet, just in very small doses. And they're just releasing harmlessly into the atmosphere for now until we find out what we're screwing up with that.
3: But the (laughs) the exhaust is released separately from the from the oxygen. Yes. Because if you were getting (laughs) carbon monoxide mixed in with that, that would be bad. (laughs) Yeah. Defeats the purpose. Separately, (laughs) separately. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Despite the necessary compromises in MOXIE's current design, the instrument has shown it can reliably and efficiently convert Mars's atmosphere into pure oxygen. The NASA team is now looking to create a bigger version. The current version of the instrument is small by design in order to fit into the Perseverance, like I said, but it is going to be about the size of a chest freezer, they think, when it's done, so about 100 times larger. Moxie does not require mobility, but Perseverance was the earliest mission opportunity. (laughs) So they kind of made a bunch of compromises so that they could get it up there faster. Full-scale oxygen factory would include larger units that would ideally, again, run continuously. The principal researcher, Hecht, again said, I would like to say that rockets breathe a lot more than we do. Just for the liftoff to orbit, the rocket will use more than 10 times the amount of fuel than the crew of four to six will use in their year and a half stay on the surface and hence it will need 10 times as much oxygen. So the amount of oxygen that they need to get off the planet once they're there is so much more than I thought.
2: So much more. And more than we can generate with potatoes. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I figured all of this oxygen was going to go to make like a habitat breathable. No. No, it's just going to get burned. (laughs) Right. So Moxie 2.0, the chest freezer size one, could create enough oxygen to either sustain a hundred crew members on Mars or lift a four-person crew off planet in a rocket the size of a chest freezer. That's wild. That's so cool. That is really cool. And And the amount of weight that they're going to save by not having to bring all that oxygen. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: And comparing it to a tree is really neat because then we can think about how soon it'll be that we can cut down all of these stupid trees (laughs) from the cities and just replace them with chest freezers. (laughs) Every opportunity. Hopeful. I love trees. I, I,
1: really,
3: I would never cut down a tree. Never hurt a tree.
1: That's not true.
3: I uh, need firewood sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they just really annoy me.
0: You
1: know. <laughs> sometimes well, you just need to chop things.
3: Welcome to Thneedville.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: no. <laughs> oh. oh, God. But we are, we are talking about scaling it up. Challenges in scaling up Moxie include temperature regulation to make sure that it heats evenly and it won't break down from the stress. So again, temperature getting up to 800 degrees is tough on a lot of equipment.
3: Be careful with that valuable equipment.
0: And that an oxygen device that can support a human mission would need to operate continuously for about 400 days. And a quote from an engineer, that's a lot of hours to put on the hardware, irrespective of what the technology is. (laughs) NASA has stated that if MOXIE worked efficiently, they could land an approximately 200 times larger MOXIE-based instrument on the planet, along with a small power plant. And that system could produce oxygen at a rate of about two kilograms an hour, in support of an eventual human mission, sometimes in the 2030s. So, it would just be hanging out there on its own, making oxygen, it storing out. it in tanks for when humans get there. That's pretty cool. Uh,
3: okay. And then eventually, we'll have enough that when Arnold Schwarzenegger loses his helmet at the climax of the film, he almost but does not quite die. Oh, but you get to see that cool like rubber mask and him <laughs> making all of those Arnold Schwarzenegger noises. <laughs>
1: well,
2: tonight was going to be a dream, right? A night where I
0: didn't have a nightmare about Total Recall. <laughs> That's not
1: true. Thanks, Jem.
0: It's a really cool experiment. They're making oxygen on Mars right now. That's so cool. They're gonna try even harder in the spring because they wanna see how far they can push this thing. This quote, I feel like really sums it up for me. So I decided to end on it. Moxie has shown that a SOXIE technology for producing oxygen on Mars from the atmosphere is viable, is scalable and meets expectations for efficiency and quality plenty of work remains, but all indications are that a scaled-up version of Moxie could produce oxygen in sufficient quantity and with acceptable reliability to support future human exploration.
3: Cool. That's great.
2: Only working four days a week.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, right now, Moxie is working a lot less than that. Yeah. The destiny of Earthseed is to take root among the stars. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go, everyone. Four,
2: three, two, one, one,) <laughs> Let's get different people in charge first. Let's get, like,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. That was really cool, Ashlyn.
0: Yeah. And that's our show. Oh, we. we have something nice. Oh, yes, I know. Those are our segments for today. Those are our hopeful things. So we've all talked about something nice, except for maybe Jem. So Jem has to go first for something nice.
3: Okay, so my something nice this month is the new Mountain Goats album.
0: Yay. Which is called
3: Bleed Out.
0: <laughs> <course it> <laughs>
3: They've been doing concept albums or like high concept albums for quite a while, and I've liked a lot of them. I think this is In League with Dragons was really good. There were lots of really good songs on this, but this is like another high watermark, I think. This album is a collection of songs that are all kind of like mini action movie moments in John Darnielle's characteristic lyrical style, and I dare you to listen to the opening song from Bleed Out which is called Training Montage. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I've heard that one. And not start bopping your head along. Oh, it's great. But is there a No Children that I can just
2: put on repeat and cry for hours to?
3: Well, the, the final song is a kind of a ballady, a jazzy ballady song called Bleed Out about a guy who is dying. And it has men. It's got some great lines in it. Because it's John uh, Darnell and he can't have anything nice. The line... I will go down punching, but I will go down.
1: <laughs> Man! Oh, no. You, like So good. I, th- I think you don't understand what hopeful means.
0: <laughs> or nice.
2: No, I, I've listened to part of this album while I was doing some searching for Vespers stuff from, from the Mountain Goats, and I heard some of this stuff. and Yeah, it's pretty good. God damn it, Jim. You got me into the Mountain Goats.
3: <laughs> I tried so hard. To, to quote the song, and I won't ever lose hope, and I haven't lost hope. I'm just realistic.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> Going to bring that to my next Sunday services meeting? I think like oh, my man. entire next Vespers is a mountain goats thing. <laughs> so good. Well, you already mean, did Tim mention. This yeah. is the next evolution. They
1: said they wanted more young people, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
3: John Darnielle is, I think, 55.
1: Yeah, young people. <laughs> Relative. That
3: is,
0: that is considered young. Yes. Young. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. I know how these communities work, just yeah. That's the
0: problem.
3: Yeah. And I had the pleasure of attending, like, listening to a pre recorded, like, live concert that they put on recently. And it was around the launch of the album. And it was just great. It was very pleasant. Good. Awesome. awesome.
2: Thanks, Jim else has something nice i want to go after you because we have basically the same life
0: well do whatever you want (laughs) no i don't
2: i can't decide which ones to do so if you narrow my field for me that's great
0: this is unfair
1: (laughs) it's a lot of pressure (laughs) well i can go next if you like yes yes my something nice was taking the kids to rainbow stage which for anyone who's not in or from Winnipeg is our local outdoor theater. It is technically outdoors, but it has a dome over top. And because of the pandemic, it was on a couple year hiatus, and so we went, they did Wizard of Oz, it was a fabulous show, and both kids swore they would not like it, and Huxley really just beaming over it. In fact, during intermission she was very frustrated. She goes, I don't like intermission. Why is that, Hux? Because it takes too long to get back to the show. <laughs> I want more show.
2: <laughs> Baby, they got oh, sm- no. to smoke all those cigarettes <laughs> and gargle all that water for the second half.
1: <laughs> yes. So it was, it was lovely to go to an event like that, and it was a lovely event.
0: And the kids had a good time. My clearest memory of the one time that I went to a rainbow stage was just the eerie thing that happened in the porta potty station outside, where I was in a porta potty and someone came and yelled, Ashlyn. And I said, Yes, because <laughs> I didn't go there with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, Oh, not you <laughs> I <was> like, What? <laughs> what is this other ash <laughs> right <laughs> i think i think i saw them leaving after and she was like nine so yeah definitely the voice that came out was not what she was expecting <laughs> to hear <laughs> oh that's very funny
3: <laughs> they have indoor plumbing now
0: oh you know, that's like, exciting oh they, yeah but they have extra them. ones outside if you don't want to wait in line for an hour
1: They've always had bathrooms. It's just like most things, they are inadequate for the number of people that yeah. go to them.
3: Yeah, especially for people who need to sit down.
1: Yeah.
2: The worst was going to that circus du Soleil in that tent.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, we, we
1: took, yeah. We took
2: our niece Sydney the night of the storm. Oh. Oh, right. And trying to use those porta-potties, which are not made for adult-sized legs. <laughs> they, they narrowed them. In the middle of a giant wind and snowstorm, and somebody's trying to pull on the door. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a pleasant experience. Lauren, you're up. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. We had a lovely weekend of camping, and I'm sure Ashwin will speak to it more. We had basically an entire campground. um, There was five of us. For most of the weekend, yeah. Yeah, and it was... Very quiet and very chill, and that's it. Yeah, it was good.
1: And you saw some amazing, oh yeah, northern lights too. Yes, right. I have so many pictures of northern lights. We're very jealous. So jealous! It looked
0: incredible. two nights in a row of just beautiful northern lights shows before bed, like they were done by ten fifteen. Wow.
2: <laughs> and our Ashlyn and I upgraded to iPhone Thirteens. What's Almost a year three? ago. Yeah. It was quite a, a while ago. So this was my first time playing with like the automatic super exposures and everything. Mm-hmm. So that's why my photos look so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm so glad that you had the technology to help <laughs> you out. <laughs>
0: Erin did not. And she was.
2: My photos don't look like that. She has a a seven or an eight or something.
0: Yeah. It's fun when they automatically take the long exposure so you mm-hmm. can get those lights in without fading out. Yeah.
1: Nice. Awesome. That sounds so lovely. Yeah, it was such a good weekend. Perfect
0: weather, spending concentrated time with people I love.
1: That's great.
0: We can have the same something nice. Mm -hmm. Or I could uh, come out to your mother via podcast episode. Go right ahead. I've also been having a really nice time with someone I've been seeing lately. I have a new boyfriend and he's lovely and I got to spend the weekend with him as well and both of my spouses are being amazing about it and he's really sweet cool and lauren's mother listens to all of our episodes <laughs> Hi, <Mom. laughs> thank you for joining me this month everyone we were a little late recording this sorry to our fans who anxiously await our every episode uh-huh. <laughs> we had a real big case of the don't want us
1: <laughs> i'm not gonna make any excuses well let's let's put it this way Really good Manitoba summers don't happen every single year. And when you have the opportunity to enjoy some really good Manitoba weather, you take it. Podcasts can wait.
0: Yeah. Podcasts are indoor activities. They are.
1: Boy, do we have enough winter for those. (laughs) Yeah. We celebrated
2: Labor Day by not, the spirit of Labor Day, by not doing extra labor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Huzzah. There you go.
0: What are we talking about next month, Jim? Next month, I will put together a quiz show. Yay! Woo-hoo. Please send quiz suggestions to <laughs> le podcast at WinnipegSkeptics.com. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Good recording. You. Good night. Good night. Good night. night.
3: Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend.
2: You're listening to life, the universe, and everything else. Today on the show, something I forget.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Hopeful science! Ah. During Jim, set during gym- Oh my god. The- the idea-
1: Is that our car? Yep, Jim. Um,
3: did I-, I You be- did. I oh no.
1: <laughs> First I thought it was another emergency <laughs> alert. Nope, just our car alarm.
3: Okay. Take that again, without the car alarm. Lue <laughs> podcast at
2: gmail dot com.
0: What are we doing
2: these days? <laughs>